Hello, I'm Professor Benjamin Kozlowski, and welcome to Mythology. Um, this is our typical boilerplate syllabus lecture. Um, I know that students often can't make it to class on the first day, so if you have in fact not made it to class, I probably pointed you in the direction of this lecture. Um, as a rule, I'm going to be uploading lectures for all of our classes this semester, or I should rather say I have already uploaded lectures, because these are just the lectures that I recorded during the height of the pandemic when everything was nuts and everyone needed to be online at a moment's notice. Um, this was my solution. Let's just put all of the lectures online. So for our purposes, they are just backup lectures. And if you can't make class for whatever reason, if you are sick, if you have other responsibilities, again, just probably listen to these lectures and you should be good to go. Um, but let's actually talk about this class, shall we? Um, Mythology is an interesting enough subject, like, I get lots of students every year, like Clockwork, who I'm pretty sure are there as much for the material as for whatever my rate my professor is saying these days. Um, it is a broad and fascinating discipline that is sort of ill-defined and covers a lot of ground. Um, but, just to warn you, because I do have to clarify this every time I go into this class, um, this is just Greek and Roman mythology and its neighbors. Like, we cover a fair amount of ancient Near East mythology, so we're talking about, like, Babylon and um, the Old Testament, things like that. Um, but generally speaking, if you came here to hear stories about Thor and Odin, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but we do not do Norse in here, because there is a separate, distinct class, I believe taught by Dr. Gill, who covers Norse mythology in great detail, and you should absolutely go take it for all, all intents and purposes. I hear it's great. Um, but yeah, we don't cover that in here. It is just Greek and Roman. It is just the ancient Near East. Um, that is our wheelhouse. That is what we cover. But we will do our level best to cover it thoroughly. Um, so let's just jump right into some of the, the fiddly bureaucratic details here. Let's talk about some of the like actual things that are going on in this class on the technical level. Um, starting, of course, with our four textbooks. Um, and yes, there are four. I may have misspoken to you if you emailed me earlier on the semester, because I typically only teach three textbooks, but because the way the schedule falls, we have an extra day or two, and I was like, you know what? I never actually teach the Aeneid, and that's a kind of big oversight, so let's take advantage of this while we can. Um, we'll get to that. Um, the first textbook, and probably the most important for you to know about right at this moment, is God's Heroes and Monsters 2nd Edition, edited by Carolina Lopez Ruiz. Um, this is our real textbook textbook. Like, the others are more just, you know, hey, it's Homer, it's Virgil, it's the plays. Like, those are just works of literature that have been put into a book. Um, God's Heroes and Monsters is a legitimate anthology. It is filled to the brim with different myths from a variety of cultures in the ancient Near East, focusing primarily on the Greek and Roman myths, but not limited to that by any extent of the imagination. Um, and this is the textbook we're going to rely upon for the pretty much whole first half of our class. Um, I really like this textbook. Like, I've seen a lot of textbooks for mythology classes, and most of them are kind of a mess. Um, like, I've poked around and seen just all these weird organizations and weird attempts to make everything make sense, and it just doesn't really work. 
Um, I tend to favor primary sources like more than I you know like these sorts of topical approaches. Um, and God's Heroes and Monsters is doing a lot with primary sources, which is very very good. Um, and it is also doing it by region and topic rather than sort of by author or trying to string all these things together in some weird nonsensical way. Um, so I really like their approach. I really like the fact that every one of the major Greek and Roman myths is contrasted against other myths of the same rough idea or topic in the area. So like when we read creation myths and we read, you know, the Theogony and the works and days and the story of Prometheus and all that stuff, we'll be able to compare it directly to the Old Testament Genesis account or, you know, some of the coffin texts from ancient Egypt or the Enuma Elish. Like, all of that is in there, and it's great. Um, it's wonderful to be able to see that kind of context, and that's one of the things that I'm going to sort of emphasize in this class. Um, like, we're going to, in addition to talking about the individual myths, and in addition to sort of talking about, like, what the content of the myths actually are, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the ways we can understand and interpret these myths. Because as much as this class is about, like, the facts and figures, you know, who did what, who did Zeus sleep with in order to beget Helen, who, you know, killed this specific hero, and, and you know, why was it significant, and so on and so forth. Like, as much as that's absolutely important to the class, and as much as that is something we will be testing regularly, the other thing I definitely want you to keep in mind is the ways that we can look at these myths, the ways that we can sort of change our perspective in order to understand what these myths are saying in new and interesting ways. Um, so we're going to spend a week doing basically comparative mythology. Let's look at Greece, but let's also look at Rome and Babylon and Egypt and Phoenicia and the Old Testament and so on and so forth. Um, we'll spend a number of classes talking about feminism. Um, like, what is the Greek attitude towards women? Is it empowering or disempowering? Who is writing empowering text versus disempowering text? How do they understand the phenomenon of sexuality? Like, that sort of thing. We'll spend at least one class poking around the, the parameters of psychoanalysis. We'll spend some time doing a little Marxist critique. We'll definitely spend a lot of time doing historical discussion, like what did the Greeks think of their own myths? And we'll spend a good bit of time doing some literary theory kind of stuff, where we're taking apart big stories and finding themes and sort of dissecting what the, the culture has to say about these subjects. That's a lot of this discipline. Um, so it's convenient that we can play around with it in so many different ways. Um, one other caveat while we're on this subject, I know that we kind of got sidetracked, but one of the weird things about Montclair's humanities department is that it is very much geared to these sorts of different disciplines and different approaches to reading these myths and materials. Um, I myself am actually not a classics guy. I am a philosophy professor in my other life at other schools. Um, but Montclair has, Montclair's humanities department while it was built around the classics department, um, very much incorporates a wide variety of different disciplines. Like in my travels at Montclair, I've met, you know, English professors who are sort of moonlighting in the humanities department, world literature professors and language, and language professors, other philosophy professors, other classics professors, anthropologists and archeologists and the whole nine yards. Like we're a pretty diverse group as academics go. And that's, 
a selling point as far as the department is concerned. It's neat that you can walk into one of you know the dozen classes uh, on mythology that are taking place at Montclair this semester or virtually any semester and never have the same two experiences depending on which classes you walk into. Um, you'll come into my class and you'll get a different focus, a different sort of emphasis than you would get taking the same class from Dr. Larson or Dr. Gill. Um, each of us have a certain sort of specialty that we bring to the subject. My specialty is philosophy, but I'm also kind of a literature guy. So one of the things that you will find me talking about more often than not is the value systems. Like, I am looking at these texts from a quasi-ethical perspective. What is this text saying to the Greeks, and what are the Greeks saying when they write the text? What are they prioritizing? What are they telling each other in, insofar as they want to sort of socialize and tell people how to behave? Um, this is the way that they tell myths reflects what they believe about the world and what they believe their role in it actually is. And I think the God's Heroes and Monsters textbook really opens up a lot of possibilities for that. Um, I think it gives us an opportunity to sort of look at these diverse cultures and be able to at least a little bit understand what their different priorities actually are at any given moment. Um, but that is only the first half of the class. Like, we'll spend the first half of the class mostly just, like, looking at all of the myths. Um, obviously not all of them. We will cover as many as possible. But we will definitely be sort of shotgunning the myths. Just, like, firing and seeing what lands um, with very little rhyme or reason. Um, we'll do it mostly topically. Like, we'll spend the first two weeks talking about creation myths. We'll spend the next two weeks talking about identity myths. And then we'll spend the last two weeks before the midterm talking about heroic myths. Because, of course, they're kind of a huge part of the whole mythic tradition. Um, but then we're kind of out. And our plan going forward for the second half of the class is to look more at the epic traditions. Um, hence the other textbooks on the list. So we'll be starting in mid to late October with The Essential Homer, as translated and edited by Stanley Lombardo. Uh, and this textbook is awesome. This is what I learned the, uh, the Homeric myths from originally, many moons ago, back when I was an undergrad taking a class that was very similar to this one. Um, and I love it. I still love it. Like, I know a lot of people are absolutely ride or die for Fagels or any number of other translations. But the real advantage of Stanley Lombardo is that it is very accessible. Um, like, Lombardo has no pretensions to highfalutin epic prose. Um, and in fact, his argument, which I very much support, is that it wasn't highfalutin epic prose back when the Homeric myths were originally being recited once upon a time. Like, when, when the bard would show up in your town or your city and recite the myth of the Iliad, you weren't hearing this, like, epic tradition hallowed over thousands of years the way that we get it. You would literally hear it being told in, you know, the vernacular, the language that you spoke, complete with vulgarity and idiom and all that stuff. Um, so the fact that we've sort of, over the course of 2,500 and more years, calcified the Homeric tradition as though there are these epic metaphors, and it's really important, and, like, you have to have, you know, your Homeric knowledge, and, and it's this elevated... Yeah, that's not how the Greeks would have heard it, or at least that's the best understanding I've heard of it so far. So we're going to read Homer 
and the characters are going to swear at each other, and the characters are going to, like, get petulant, and, you know, the epic passages will be interrupted by sort of comically inept actions and stuff. Um, I love it. What's more, um, it is an excerpted text. Like, you will not find the complete Iliad and the complete Odyssey in here. Lombardo has translated the Iliad in its totality and the Odyssey in its totality. Um, but the essential Homer reduces both texts to about half their usual size. Like, that's literally how he puts it in the introduction. Um, so he removes a lot. Uh, with an eye towards focusing on the characters and the events and the plots that are sort of primary in the text, cutting the stuff that is secondary or sort of like the B-plot, so to speak. Um, which is also good for us, because we don't need everything. Like, we're not studying these as, you know, documents of major historical worth, like, in the sense that a master's student might be. We don't need the, the listing of every single ship and every single dude on the plains of Ilium before the battle starts. Like, that's not our goal. We just need to see the major points. Um, so this text is great for that as well, because, like, we'll read pretty much everything he's got for the Odyssey. Like, I think we skip one chapter, um, and it'll only take us three weeks, as opposed to the, you know, months that it would otherwise if we went through the whole text. Um, so, yeah, definitely get the Essential Homer. Um, it's cheap. Both of these textbooks are cheap. Like, I think last I checked, God's Heroes and Monsters was, like, under $35 on Amazon, and I'm pretty sure the Essential Homer is more like 10 to 15 uh, depending on where you find it. Um, what's more, while I'm not sure the bookstore has my book specifically, I typically am completely inept in talking to the bookstore, um, I do know that other professors are using all of these textbooks, so feel free to poach them from other class lists. Um, or, as always, feel free to get them on Amazon or wherever your, you know, like, used bookstore of choice turns out to be. Um, the new addition to the course, the one that I'm not as used to, is the Essential Aeneid. Um, this is another one that I had back when I was in college, back when I was studying this stuff. Um, my course was, I guess, a little bit more rigorous than I structured this one out to be, weirdly enough. This is the sort of thing that keeps me up at night as a professor. Um, but the Essential Aeneid is exactly what the Essential Homer is to Homer. Um, the Aeneid was the great Roman epic poem as written by Virgil during the reign of Augustine to sort of hallow and, and set in stone the grandness of the Roman Empire as compared to those filthy, ugly Greeks who, you know, are just smart and obnoxious and stuff. Um, we're not going to read a whole lot of the Essential Aeneid. We're only going to spend a week in here, and it's like the second to last week of class. Um, so there's definitely no hurry in getting the book. And I've also tracked down basically the whole book online. Um, but I would recommend that you get the book anyway, because I feel kind of bad about just, like, undercutting Lombardo's income on this one. Um, we are going to read, like, a good 60 to 70 pages of the Aeneid, um, mostly just the really super important stuff, and just to give you a glimpse of what exactly Virgil is doing when compared and contrasted to Homer. Um, so I do recommend you get the book, especially because, again, this is super cheap. Like, I want to say this one's 10 compared to Homer's 15. So, yeah, pick up The Essential Aeneid. You can definitely get an alternative. We can talk through that if we need to. Um, but, yeah, it just is decent behavior if you can afford it. Um, lastly, we have The Theban Plays. Um, we are going to spend literally the last, like, two days of class talking about uh, Oedipus Rex uh, because I think it is really important to sort of expose you to the Greek tragic thing. 
Um, and Oedipus Rex is like the most typically Greek trage- tragedy of the Greek tragedies. Um, it's the one that high schools frequently teach, so I wouldn't be surprised if you've read this one before. Um, and there is literally nothing special about this particular book. This is like the super cheap Dover edition with a very antiquated translation. Like, if you don't want to get the book, fine, don't. Um, but it's also only $5, so, like, it'll be useful if you have it because you can follow along with the page numbers as I talk about it. But honestly, if you want to use Project Gutenberg or a free alternative, be my guest. I'm not going to, to really harp on this one. Um, so definitely get God's Heroes and Monsters. That one will be super important. Like, I've definitely had students who were very much lost if they didn't get even the right edition. Um, the Essential Homer I highly recommend. The other two are more dubious, and I absolutely do not care whether you get the Theban plays or not. Mostly it's just there for anyone who does, in fact, want the hard copy so they can mark it up and stuff. Um, plus, there is an extra credit assignment that deals with the Antigone, which is also in there, so maybe consider getting it for that reason. Those extra credits do tend to be very, very valuable towards the end of the semester. Um, but let's move on. So we talked a good bit about the course description when I was talking about the textbook, because I am scatterbrained like that. Um, so we can just skip through all these general education requirements, like they're way more important for me and for my department chair and sort of keeping all mythology classes at least somewhat consistent across multiple professors coming from multiple disciplines and things, um, but they're not terribly important to you. Again, the main thrust here is you should definitely know the substance of most of these myths by the end of the class, and you should know the interpretive matrices through which to examine them by the end of this class. Um, but whatever, that's fancy talk. Let's move on to the conduct and talk about some of the practical matters that are just going to inform virtually every day of this class. Um, so first off, if you haven't heard, because Montclair is often pretty bad about communicating this information through its various bureaucratic systems and circles of hell, um, we are meeting every week, twice, once on Mondays on campus in University Hall 2044, as indicated on the syllabus, once online via Canvas conferences, I assume, possibly Zoom. I don't know. Every single one of my schools has different policies at this point. P.S. Did I mention I'm currently teaching here and at Ramapo and at Bergen, and I'm not teaching in Sussex, even though I usually do. Like, I'm all over northern New Jersey. I am, I am hot shit as adjunct professors go. That's what it comes down to. Um, you were all lucky to have me. Um, but yeah, like, we are meeting twice a week. We are going to meet on Thursdays, virtually, via Canvas in some fashion, which I suppose we will figure out by the time that this actually is being listened to by you, um, and in person on Mondays. If that has changed, I haven't heard about it, so please let me know if somebody else is telling you something different. Um, this was all rather slapdash in, on my end, um, by which I mean, like, I was told about this class rather recently. Um, but that's okay, because I have all the materials sitting around, and I am ready to go at a moment's notice. Anyway, enough about me. Conduct. Let's talk conduct. Um, at this point, I imagine you've seen this stuff before. Like, I imagine just about every college syllabus has a conduct section, section at this point, if only to cover one's butt. Um, for all I know, you've seen it in high school at this point. Like, it comes up. Uh, but these are the sorts of problems that I've just bumped into as a professor over time. And I want to kind of just 
walk us through them one at a time. Um, first off, cell phones should be turned off and ignored throughout class. Like, mostly just to be considerate. Um, obviously this pertains more to our Monday classes on campus than it does to our Thursday virtual sessions. Like, I don't know if you've got your phone on or not. Like, you could be sitting there watching YouTube videos and ignoring me for all I know. Um, I don't recommend it, but you could, in theory. Um, the main thing that I want to stress here is don't let it disturb other students. Um, like, if you in fact need to take an important phone call, that's fine. Like, shit happens. If, you're, if your family is sick, or if you've, you know, got like a major job thing that you're waiting for, or if some other crazy thing in your life is happening, and you really need to be, like, available to pick up the phone when it rings, that's fine. Just, you know, sit at the edge of the room, near the door, when the phone goes off, just sprint out, take your call. No big deal. Like, the less dramatic you make it, the better it will be for us all. Um, maybe inform me if you anticipate an important call during class, or if you need to step out for some reason, like, preferably before class begins, but honestly, just use your discretion. Like, I know that at the end of the day, if your phone goes off in the middle of class, everybody turns and stares at you, and you are as mortified and embarrassed as I would be under the circumstances. So, by all means, just, you know, think about it beforehand. Um, this also sort of applies to being distracted in class. Um, like, as a rule, I highly recommend that you kind of pay attention to what we're talking about. It'll help you understand the material better. There's usually some really interesting ideas floating around the classroom, most of which are not mine. Um, and that's important to the whole educational process. Like, humanities is, generally speaking, a discussion. Um, different viewpoints, different attitudes, different understandings of the text typically inform a better, more robust understanding and interpretation of these really old books. Um, what's more, some of these are just flat-out confusing and complicated and weird, and having my expertise or the help of your fellow students is usually advantageous to your understanding. Uh, but that said, if you need to do something else during class in order to focus, like if you, I, this happens, I remember when I was, you know, in, in my seminary classes, I had this one professor in this one class, and I just, I couldn't do it. Like, it was so freaking boring. Dispensational premillennialism. Like, why is that a class? Um, and I sat in the back, and I sat there playing the Super Hexagon every single class, because it helped me to stay awake. Um, if that's your situation, if you are working in, like, a 40-hour work week in addition to a full schedule of classes, and sleep is scarce, and you need something to just, like keep your brain going so you don't just nod off during my lectures, go ahead, just don't make a big deal out of it. Like, obviously turn the sound off, that would just be plain old boring courtesy, but also maybe position yourself towards the back of the class so, like, nobody is watching you do this, nobody else is distracted by you doing this. Um, just be considerate. Like, whatever your personal decision about your performance in this class is going to be whatever you are trying to figure out for your best performance or if you don't give a crap and you just are perfectly happy taking the d and calling it a day just don't mess up the experience for other people who do need to concentrate who do need to pay attention who do need to be like 100 zeroed in um, don't make it harder for other people is what it comes down to. And likewise, if your experience is becoming more difficult because of something one of the other students is doing, let me know. 
um, I'll step on it. Like, I'll be polite about it for the most part, but I will be firm and I'll make sure that it's dealt with. Um, so just let me know. Um, this is going to actually be something that comes up a lot in the conduct section and throughout the class. Communicate with me. Um, like, let's take our next point on the conduct section for example. Late assignments will not be accepted without prior consultation with the professor, i.e. before the assigned due date. That is just a bald-faced lie. I'm not going to deny it. I am a teddy bear when it comes to late assignments. If students, you know, need an extension on a paper, if they need, like, a little bit more time to work on some assignments, in general, I am going to just hand them out like candy, especially during COVID times, because I know everything is nuts. Um, people are getting sick, people are dying, people are going to funerals, people are trying to work at really stressful positions, and people are not making those positions any less stressful. Like, customer service has become an absolute horrifying Dante-esque nightmare at this point. I get it. If you need to take a mental health day, if you need more time to work on a paper, fine. Just let me know. Um, I will absolutely be more than happy to give you extensions to give you, you know, more time to work on things. I want to see your best work is what it comes down to. Uh, whatever that looks like, whatever time you need to make that happen. Um, I don't want to see something just thrown out the door slapdash unless that's the only possible thing that you can offer me at this point, which does happen. Give yourself some slack on it. Um, what I'm stressing here is keep an open channel of communication. Let me know what your situation is. Um, like, I had a student about a year and a half ago, back in like, well, no, that was a year ago now. Ugh, time is moving so slowly, slash quickly. Um, back in the fall, I was teaching a class at Bergen, and I had a student who was working a full-time job as a nurse under COVID while also taking full-time classes and raising her kids as a single mom. Like, yeah. That's stressful, crazy stuff. And when she asked for an extension, I knew she needed it, and I gave it to her gladly. Your situation might not be nearly as desperate as hers. Whatever it is, don't compare. Like, there's no adva advantage to be had in comparing your situation to others. Um, instead, just let me know. Like, maybe you're responsible for taking care of smaller children slash middle schoolers in your household. Fine, let me know. Um, I'll be aware that when you ask for an extension, it's not frivolous. Maybe you're working full-time in order to pay your way through college. If so, let me know. Um, maybe you're dealing with sick parents, or maybe you're dealing with, like, crazy social situations. Whatever the case may be, just keep me informed. If you let me know an hour before the paper is due that you just cannot get it on in on time because, like, the power is out and everybody is sick and... You have to go to a late, unexpected shift, and so on and so forth. Whatever. That's fine. Like, send me the email. Even if I don't get back to you by the due date, assume that I, I am going to see it, and I am going to, you know, give you the benefit of the doubt. But, there is a big difference between sending that email an hour before the assignment is due and the hour after the assignment is due. Like, all you need to do is email me. Um, all you need to do is just drop me a line, say, Professor, I'm probably not going to get it in on time. Like, even if you cannot afford the long, involved explanation that most students feel obligated to give me, that's fine. Just let me know that you are thinking about this, you are aware of when the due date is, and you know that you're supposed to have it in, but can't for whatever reason. We can cover that later if necessary. 
Um, all I'm looking for is that vote of good faith on your part. I'm looking for that connection. The worst possible situation for me as your professor is to see you in my class and have no idea what is going on. Like, none. You just show up, you're a face in my classroom, you're a name on my Zoom list, you're a name on my roster, and I couldn't say boo about what is happening there. Maybe you've missed quizzes, maybe you've missed writing assignments, and I've heard nothing. I have no idea. Like, I know that this semester is going to be stressful. If this is your first semester of college, it will probably be really stressful. Um, these are not ideal conditions to be a college student, that is for sure. Um, but don't be afraid of me, is what I'm coming down to. Like, yeah, I'm a busy dude. I've got a lot of things going on. I'm managing a bunch of classes. I have an internet presence. Like, I'm always doing a billion things at the same time. But it is no, it is not stressful to me to receive an email and just let it sit in my inbox. Like, even if I don't get back to you, which will happen, um, it's not an indication that I'm overworked or I'm stressed out or I'm angry or anything like that. It just means I'm busy. Um, hopefully I will get back to you, preferably within the first 24 hours, though sometimes it doesn't work that way. Um, what's important to me is I see that you're reaching out. I see that you're trying to make a connection. I see that you are concerned about your performance in this class, concerned about your grade in this class, concerned about what I think of your performance in this class. That's all I need. Um, if you are willing to reach out to me, if you are willing to tell me, you know, I don't feel up to it. I feel really stressed out. I had a panic attack. Whatever the case may be, I'm not going to bite your head off. I'm not interested in doing that. Like, I'm not interested in playing the guilt card. I think guilt is a shitty way to motivate people. Um, I'm interested in the future. Like, even if you come to me, you know, halfway through December, and you say, I'm sorry I haven't turned in any assignments this semester, but I had a really tough time and I had some major mental problems, I'm not going to question you on it. I'm not going to fault you for it. I'm going to answer, okay, what do we do to move forward? How do we fix this? Um, how do we make the best possible outcome of this mess? Um, that's all I'm looking for. So don't be afraid of me. Um, just let me know what's going on. I promise I am not going to bite your head off. I promise I'm not going to play guilt cards. All I want is to see your best work, your best performance in this class. I want to help you learn is what it comes down to. I find this stuff fascinating. I hope that you do too. Um, I want to help make it fascinating for you. Um, and I want it to help sort of teach you to learn how to express that, how to articulate these ideas, how to perform well in college going forward, and how to sort of appreciate and understand and talk about these great works of literature, philosophy, mythology, whatever you find yourself tackling. So just let me know. Just talk to me. Just open up a channel of communication. Just send me an email from time to time. Like, even out of the blue, even if it's not related to an assignment, just send me an email. Ask me what my favorite video game is. I will probably give you quite the response. Um, I am a giant dork, and I look for opportunities to talk about the things that I care about. If you are as well, if you are typically introverted, by all means, give me a, give me a shout. Let's talk about something that we're both passionate about. Um, let's make that connection. Let's make that work. And I'm not trying to be your friend. Like, I know that there are professors who are sort of all about that. And I know perfectly well that at the end of the six months, you'll probably never talk to me again. That's fine. What I'm looking for is a way to help you perform. A way that, a sort of comfort zone where I can reach out to you and ask, you know, hey, what's up? I didn't get an assignment from you this week. Or, 
you know, how's things going with your family? I know that it's been tough lately. Like, that's all I'm looking for. Help me to understand where you are in this class, and I will help you to perform better in this class. We can make this work. I just need to know on my end what's going on. Um, so in general, I will absolutely accommodate exceptional circumstances. I will absolutely be understanding of crazy situations going on at home. I will absolutely give you extensions, whatever you need to succeed. The one exception, of course, is plagiarism. Plagiarism will not be tolerated. Plagiarized assignments will immediately receive zero credit. I do not mess around with plagiarism, nor do I feel that I should. Um, it has become an absolute epidemic in the wake of the pandemic. Like, I've had multiple classes where I've failed more than a quarter of the class because of plagiarism. And I am not afraid to do that. I have even gotten a little in a little hot water over it. And I just plowed right through and it worked out fine. The campus policies on plagiarism are really straightforward. You should not do it. It is absolutely warranting a zero when it is done. It is not something I'm going to put up with here. So do not try me. Um, like literally anything you do besides plagiarize the assignment will go better for you than plagiarizing the assignment. So just don't even mess with it. Like when, when that temptation creeps into your brain to blow off the assignment and turn in somebody else's work instead, just shut it down. Like I'd rather you turn in a blank piece of paper. Um, you might even get a better grade for a blank piece of paper. Um, but we'll come back to that. The next two are the fuzzier subjects, and I do kind of want to talk about them, though. Um, first off, students should conduct themselves professionally and should preserve the classroom setting as a place for free intellectual discourse. Harassment based on race, sex, gender, religion, or ability will not be tolerated. And this one's complicated. Like, I suspect we all know immediately upon reading this what I'm talking about here, like anyone who has spent any amount of time on the internet at this point, can probably talk about how the state of the American intellectual conversation has degenerated into people just screaming at each other on Facebook about things that don't make any sense. Um, I am well aware that this is the case, and it is the thing in my life that I am fighting the hardest against. Like, I am, back in my philosophy professorial respects, very much about philosophy of language. I am fascinated by the way the ways that we communicate with each other. And this whole, like, the what state of American discourse since the Trump administration, let's not mince words, has really gotten weird and creepy and polarized and bad. The fact of the matter is, the internet, in all of its wondrous potential, has also served as a way of isolating us into our echo chambers and letting us just get more and more radicalized with every passing day. And that is a bad thing. It means that we no longer are able to communicate with our intellectual opponents. The fact of the matter is, if Democrats are convinced that all Republicans are bigots and racists and monsters and Nazis, and all Republicans believe that Democrats are a bunch of bleeding heart, pedophile, lizard people who are trying to foist off their, like, agenda on folks, there's no way that we can ever come to compromise. And everyone involved in this is voting. Um, like, we either have to be able to fix this and start being able to talk rationally about things like, I don't know, a giant pandemic that is threatening to kill large amounts of Americans, 
or we're just going to fall apart, and it's just going to be majority rules. The, as I believe Aristotle put it, the, di what is it, the, the tyranny, the tyranny of the majority over the minority. Just Republicans win the presidency and the Senate, and therefore they just step on Democrats. Forget their rights. Nobody cares. Likewise for the Democrats. Um, that's bad news. I don't like it. And I refuse to tolerate this in my own classroom under my own watch. At least part of my motivation in being a teacher here and sort of walking you through these questions is, as weird as it may be to do this as a mythology professor, to try and teach you to speak with one another civilly. And sometimes it's not warranted. I'm not going to deny that. Like, on the one hand, I've been talking about the Republicans and Democrats as though it's even-handed. Both of them are bad. But the fact of the matter is, Democrats don't want to kill Republicans. Republicans do, in fact, want to kill Democrats in many, many circumstances. And that is not fair. That is not okay. I will not look the other way on this one or pretend to be neutral. Um, obviously, there is a moral high ground to be had here, whatever faults that moral high ground may still possess. But, and this is what I want to stress, in this classroom, we have to talk to each other. And this is not going to be easy stuff to talk about in some cases. Like, it's mythology, so we can largely compartmentalize it and keep it separate from us. That's great. But we are, in fact, going to talk about the Old and New Testament in here. We're actually going to talk about Christianity for a decent, like, the whole class as it comes down. Which means we're going to be treading on some fairly divisive, fairly controversial ground. Um, and people are going to have opinions. People are going to have strong opinions. I'm going to talk about the Old Testament as though Genesis 1-3 to is a myth. And that itself would ruffle the feathers of many of the people I used to go to school with back when I was in seminary. Um, I know this. I am aware of this. Um, I know that I am treading on dangerous ground, but I also feel like I have to. Because this is really important, both for scholarly reasons and because it's sort of this foundational thing in Western culture that we definitely have not overcome at this point, no matter how many scholars seem to think that it is all in the past for us. Um, we need to talk about it, in short. We need to talk about the context of mythology in both the sense of like the 2,500-year-old stuff that nobody believes anymore, and the 2,500-year-old stuff that people do believe, still, to this day. Uh, we need to talk about it seriously. And that means we need to feel safe talking about it, feel safe voicing our opinions, feel safe expressing ourselves and our understanding of things. Which is tricksy, because a lot of this stuff is in fact bound up with our identity. I mean, we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about the Greek understanding of homosexuality, which, P.S., as much as people seem to think that, like, the Greek homosexual world was very much on par with, you know, modern queer movements, it really isn't. Their attitudes are very, very different. It comes from a completely different place of understanding, but it is also completely at odds with the Christian worldview and all that stuff, and once again, we're going to just have ideologies banging into each other all semester long. And the best way for us to talk about them is to keep them, at least as much as possible, at a distance from ourselves. Now, I don't want us to just turn into a bunch of apathetic edgelords talking about controversial material as though it has no bearing on our lives. I don't think that that's true. Um, I think this stuff should be, to some degree, uncomfortable to talk about, challenging to discuss. I think we will have to be careful about the way we talk about some of these issues. In short, I do want you to sweat. 
Like, I want you to be put on the spot. I want you to say, I think, you know, this is a really compelling perspective and that it is really unique. And for somebody else to be able to challenge you on. Like, if you are a Christian and you're coming to this class and you look at all of our myths and you're like, man, it is so obvious that, like, the Christian and Jewish myth is totally different from all these other myths that we're studying in class. And another student comes out and says, no, it's actually just, like, a direct... You know, here's what it's borrowing from the Enuma Elish, and here's what it's borrowing from the Egyptian perspective, and, like, that's okay. That's what I want. That's what this discussion should look like. But the key is you can't take it personally. And you can't make it personal either. I want sweat. I want difficult conversations. But I don't want blood, and I don't want tears. I need us to respect one another. Like, I know that one of the main strategies behind both sides of the political spectrum at this point are what is called poisoning the well. Make people completely wrong so that no matter what they have to say, people don't listen to them. Jordan Peterson is just wrong, says the Democrats. Donald Trump is just wrong, or says the Democrats. Hillary Clinton, you know, various Democratic pundits, Joe Biden, you name it, they are just wrong says the Republicans. And the fact of the matter is, people aren't just right or wrong. Idiots say smart things from time to time, and smart people say dumb things from time to time. I study Nietzsche. I would know. Um, we have to respect each other as human beings. We have to, whether true, false, or otherwise, assume the underlying dignity of humanity and basically treat each other as decent thinking, rational beings until we literally have no other recourse. Until there is no way of doing that anymore. Um, so, attack opinions. Don't attack people. And don't let yourself be attacked when your opinions are attacked. Don't make it personal until it absolutely cannot be in any other way. And if it is in fact becoming personal, like if I see a student saying, you're dumb, I will step on that really fast. And if I don't, call me out on it. Um, I want to make this place safe because I want to have these conversations. I want to have this, you know, divisive, conflicting controversy in the classroom because that's how people learn. Um, and in order to do that, you need to feel safe having your ideas voiced and letting them hang there and letting them be attacked and letting them be questioned and then be okay with it. Like, we have to be able to question our ideas. Anyone who believes something 100% and is not willing to admit of any possibility of doubt isn't going to change and isn't going to grow and kind of is wasting their time in college, to be honest. You need to be open to new ideas, new opinions, or else your teachers are just wasting their time. Um, that's just the way it goes. Um, so, by all means, bring up difficult subjects, but don't turn it personal either for yourself or for others. Don't step on other people. Don't, you know, step on yourselves. Respect one another and yourself as dignified human beings, as worthwhile people, as precious beings in the sight of God or however you want to understand it. All right. The last point that I want to talk about is kind of really closely connected. Pride is overrated. Questions and mistakes are encouraged. So... Here's the thing, again, as I just said, like, if you believe you are 100% right all of the time, you won't learn. You won't change. 
And I know that this is a kind of easy thing for me to say in my professorial capacity. Like, I have built a persona for myself, a set of responsibilities for myself, like a reputation for myself based on inquiry and understanding. But you don't necessarily have the same luxury. Like, I know that college is a friggin' minefield of social responsibilities and, you know, like, romantic expectations. Like, I would imagine that in this class, even as we speak, there are probably already students who are sort of singling each other out, saying, you know, I really want to be friends with that person, or I really want to tap that before the end of the semester. And I don't need to know any of that shit. I don't want to know any of that. Like, it is beyond my purview in so many ways. But what I do want to stress is that it shouldn't get in the way of you learning stuff this semester. Um, I know that it, part of being a college student, being a human being, because unfortunately it does not go away, is looking strong. Like, looking like you've got your shit together. Looking like you understand and have your world under control. That, you know, dis like depression and anxiety are not attractive qualities in people, so we project like we're all okay, even though we're dying inside. I know that that's part of the way the world works. But in our class, you've got to be willing to look like an idiot from time to time. Like, in order to learn. I want you to raise your hand and ask dumb questions. And I have this every year. Some student will inevitably, like even on a regular basis, raise their hand and the first thing out of their mouth is, Professor Kozlowski, this might be a dumb question, but, and I will just like, no, there are no dumb questions. If you don't know what's going on, ask me. Um, if you have no idea what this person is talking about in this myth, ask me about it. You're certainly not the only one. You're just the only one brave enough to raise their hand and ask about it. Um, so it is not shameful at all. I refuse to make it shameful, and I won't treat you worse as a consequence. I mean, yes, there are some students who are sort of socially unaware of themselves and seem to speak up too often, but honestly, as far as I'm concerned, I'm cool with them. I have no beef with them. I don't need to, you know, they don't need to prove anything to me. If anything, they are proving it. They're proving that they are inquisitive. They're proving that they're curious. They're proving that they're interested. They're proving that they're passionate. That's good as far as I'm concerned. So let the morally or the socially inept students reign in this class as far as I'm concerned. Ask your question. Make your mistakes. Say your dumb thing. You know, make an observation about the text and have me just immediately be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then explain it. Um, help me to understand. Um, let's agree for the purposes of this classroom because, again, you can't learn if you're too busy being awesome to admit that you don't know something. Let's just agree that we're all dumb, including me. Like, yes, I will give you answers to questions, and every now and again I will get that question and I will give you a bullshit answer. Because I am a professor and I also feel that obligation to look smart in front of all my students. Hopefully, I'll have the grace and dignity to say, I don't know. Um, but in the case that I don't and I just bullshit you, feel free to call me out on it. Feel free to put me on the spot. Make me look like an idiot. By all means. Oh, it felt so good when I used to do that to my professors as an undergrad. And again, hopefully I have the grace to, you know, be okay with this. In general, the students who are the biggest punks in my class tend to be the ones that I'm most affectionate about at the end of the semester. Rough as it might be getting there. Um, so, yes, look like an idiot. Pride is overrated. Leave it at the door. Just ask your question already. 
no dumb questions in this room. Let's answer all of those things. Let's explore weird and strange dimensions of these writings. Let's go where we have not gone before. All right, I'm getting off my soapbox. I hope everyone understands the context section. Let's move on to the other technical stuff. First off, the attendance policy. I hate attendance policies. I always have hated attendance policies. Like ever since I was an undergrad and I was sitting in my physics class and it was the most boring thing in the world, at least in part because my teacher in high school was better and as a consequence I knew literally everything we covered that semester and then some. Like, I can't even. I just showed up to like a third of the classes, took the final, aced it, and called it a day. And on some level, that is still deeply instilled in me, that a student should be able to come to my class, just show up for the final, turn in all the assignments, and get their B or their A or whatever. Um, but that's usually not the way it works, and most students who think they can get away with that actually can't. Um, it has been the rare scenario where a student has been able to actually not show up at all and still manage to get a decent grade out of it. So our, our attendance and, uh, attendance and participation grade is stuck onto your final grade at the end of the semester. It is literally just 10 points. Like, I don't even, you know, turn it into averages or anything. I literally just take the last 10 points of your grade at the end of the semester, and I'm like, hmm, did you show up frequently? Let me check my grade book. Did you raise your hand frequently? Let me check my grade book. And then I give you a number from 1 to 10. Um, the way that this usually pans out is every absence that you have in this class after the third, you will lose 1% of your final grade. So like you miss four absences and I don't know anything about any of them, and you'll have a 9 out of 10 for your attendance and participation grade. If you have five, now it's an, an 8 out of 10 which means that your final grade is now a 98. That is the highest possible grade you can get, which means that every time you get a B on a paper or a lower than you know perfect grade on a quiz, it is not detracting from 100, it is detracting from 98. So it's going to go down real fast. So you do not want to mess around with this too much. But I also know that it is COVID times and that everything is crazy. And the last thing I want is for my students to feel obligated to show up to my class when they are in fact feeling sick. So notice that there is no limit here. Like, yes, you will lose points, and you will lose points for excused absence or unexcused absences only. The excused absences will not count. You send me an email before you miss class, and you say, Professor, I am sick. Professor, I am having a mental health day. Professor, I need to do something with my family or my job or my friends or whatever. That's excused. You're good. Please don't panic. Likewise, remember that half of these classes are going to be online, so all you have to do is show up in the Zoom or the conference or whatever it is, and we're good. So, the one thing to keep in mind here, um, again, besides just, once again, keep in touch with me, let me know what's going on so I can, you know, accommodate your circumstances and react appropriately, is just do the work. Like... Just about everything we do for this class, every assignment, every quiz, is going to take place online, on Canvas. Um, I hate wasting class time with tests and quizzes and writing assignments and stuff. It seems like it's just, like, we could be using that time to talk about Homer some more. Um, so, literally everything is going to be online. So if you're absent, that's fine. Take the quiz, do the reading, write the response paper, whatever it turns out to be, and we're good. 
Like, even if you send me a message and you're like, Professor, I'm not going to make it to class today. Is there any work that I need to make up? I'll be like, check the Canvas page. It's all there. Um, and it is. Like, if you haven't tracked it down already, if you have somehow managed to access this this uh, lecture without going to Canvas, the modules page is literally a scheduled list of everything we're doing in this class. Every reading, every assignment, every quiz. It's all there, week by week, broken down for your convenience. So it, if at any time you were like, what, do I, what am I supposed to be doing for class tomorrow? You can look at the modules page and know immediately. So just, again, keep me informed, keep up with the work. Don't worry about the attendance if there, you have a good reason not to be in class for whatever that reason might be. I'm not going to stress about it. You shouldn't either. Um, other stuff. Office hours are weird for me because I'm an adjunct professor and I don't technically have an office and trying to hang out in the adjunct office is not something I terribly like to do. It's not terribly convenient for either students or for me in my experience, especially when we're supposed to be social distancing. Um, so as much as I do have the listing for the adjunct office in Dixon Hall, I'm probably not going to be there all that often. What I will do, however, is be on campus as early as I possibly can. Um, our class is already pretty early. Like, this is, I think, the earliest class I've ever taught at Montclair, so I'm going to probably end up having to mess with my commute a good bit. But at any rate, I'm going to try and be here early, and I can definitely stay afterwards. I do, in fact, have to drive from Montclair to Ramapo on Mondays, so I can't stick around forever. Um, but I can definitely hang around after class for even up to an hour and talk through things with you if you need to. So... The other obvious solution to the office hours problem is you can always catch me online. Like, it is no skin off my nose to jump into a Canvas conference or a Zoom call with you and talk over the situation, whatever it might be. So if you need to meet me for whatever reason, just email me, make an appointment, or catch me before or after class. Tell me that you need some time, and I'll either make it right then and there, or I will find time that I can. Either way, it can be done. Just because I don't have official technical office hours where I'm just like sitting there waiting for you to drop in because my schedule really isn't going to admit it terribly well, I can absolutely make this work. I can absolutely show up when you need me to be there. So, just email me. As always, just stay in touch. Um, disabilities and special accommodations. If you have a disability, if you need accommodations, if you need more time on quizzes, tests, if you need more time with the paper, whatever, just let me know, preferably as soon as possible. Um, in general, like, I also have students who are like, hey, can I record the class because of whatever disability I have? Yes. Like, I'll just tell you right now, yes, I'm not going to be terribly upset. Like, please do just let me know you're doing it, but I'm not going to be upset about it. Additionally, feel free to use the recorded lectures that I've already provided. They're all there. It's great. Um, but yeah, just let me know as soon as possible. Like, let me know what you need changed, what needs to occur. Like, it is no time at all for me to change, like, your quizzes so that you get, you know, like 20 minutes instead of 10 or whatever the case may be. I just need to know so I can help. Um, so just, you know, keep me informed. Oh, would you look at that? The next section is, once again, academic integrity. Plagiarism will not be tolerated. Plagiarized assignments will immediately receive zero credit. I want to stress this because, again, the plagiarism has kind of become this whole horrible epidemic within a pandemic thing. Like, I even heard a rumor recently that apparently, like, the entire freshman class at West Point, like, a third of the class failed because they plagiarized in their first semester. And I believe it! I believe it! 
Not just because, you know, West Point, but, like, seriously, these students worked really hard to get into this position, and for some reason, plagiarism is just not what it used to be. Like, the taboos on it have very much changed. Um, what's more, I always, inevitably, get students who plagiarized during the semester, and the number one excuse for why they plagiarized was, But professor, I didn't know I was plagiarizing. And I want to put that one to rest right now. So, let's talk about what plagiarism is. There are three kinds of plagiarism. The first, and most obvious, is word-for-word -word plagiarism. This is what usually everybody thinks when you say plagiarism. This is the case of somebody who, like, takes a page of Sparknotes, copies it, pastes it directly into a document, and calls it their own work. This is excruciatingly obviously plagiarism. Like, at this point, Turnitin will catch it. I will probably catch it from doing a single Google search. And at this point, I know practically all of the Sparknotes pages because so many students have tried to plagiarize them at various times. It's one of the first places I go. So, don't do it. If you do this, if you copy a whole section of some other text and put it directly into your paper and pass, try and pass it off as your own, I will almost undoubtedly catch it, give it a zero, and that's the end of the conversation. No ifs, ands, or buts, no pleas, no apologies, no nothing. That was plagiarism. You should definitely know that's plagiarism. Moving on. The second kind of plagiarism is a little trickier, though. I have seen a lot of students in my few years of teaching, which have all been in the internet age, taking a text like a whole page of Sparknotes and then changing it. Maybe they move this paragraph around. Maybe they take this sentence and swap it with that sentence. Maybe they change some of the word choices. Maybe they rephrase it in a certain, in a certain way, using the same words but reorganizing them cleverly. And my theory is that there's some algorithm out there that does this. Like, I even found on Grammarly, you can drop a whole chunk of text into Grammarly and just click through all of the suggestions. Yes, make that change. By all means, transpose those two words. Yes, let's replace that with a different word. Yes, let's, you know, make that sentence change up a little bit. Let's divide it into two, two new sentences. Let's, you know, fix this so carefully that it is not at all recognizable. I also believe that there are students who think that this is legitimately how you write papers. Like, last semester, it got kind of dicey. I had numerous conversations with students where I would be like, hey, you plagiarized this paper. And my student would respond, no, I didn't. Here, you can look at Turnitin's plagiarism checker, and it gets a 0%. Or you can check it on Grammarly's free plagiarism checker, and look, it gets a 0%. To which I respond, this was obviously originally from this source, which I tracked down, even though I had to, like, you know, untangle the changes that you'd made to the text. It is therefore not original work, and it is therefore plagiarism. And some students literally did not know what I was talking about. They literally said, no, it isn't. Like, it's definitely different. No, it's not. Um, plagiarism is defined by representing one, somebody else's work as though it were your own. And if you're taking somebody else's paper, somebody else's words, and just, like, throwing them into the salad shooter and shooting out something that looks vaguely like the paper that, you know, that you wanted to write, but is relatively unrecognizable from the paper you actually took it from, that's not original work. That's still plagiarism. Um, so if this comes as a shock to you, please let me know, and we can talk about this, because this is definitely plagiarism, I will in fact catch it because most of the time when students do this it ends up sounding like some alien wrote it and it doesn't sound like English at all, much less the kind of English that my student would be able to write. And as a consequence, 
I don't want to have some weird, uncomfortable discussion about what is or is not plagiarism in some grand philosophical sense at the end of the semester. Uh, if you want to really succeed in this class, I'm going to expect more than just salad shooter papers. I will expect original work. And yeah, there is some similarity between the two. Like, at the end of the day, when I ask you to write the research paper, I'm going to ask you to take multiple sources and multiple viewpoints from within those sources and synthesize them into something uniquely your own. But that is not the same as jumbling up their words, sticking them on their paper, and calling it a day. Um, that's a very different thing. Like, academics are typically synthesists. You have no idea how many philosophy books I have read, which are basically just some philosopher just slicing and dicing all of these ideas across all remembered history. Like, that's basically Foucault's whole shtick. Uh, but at the same time, Foucault is always coming to his own point. He's always including these other thinkers and other thoughts with a very deliberate and clear intention in mind. He is shaping our understanding of these things. He is interpreting them. And that is a completely different animal from just moving their words around and duplicating it as though it's the same thing. So if you want to talk about this, if you want to clarify, if you want to pick my brain, by all means, do so. I strongly encourage you to. But the fact of the matter is, if I find some paper that is just a garbled mess of quasi-English language roughly comparable to something that I found online, I'm going to call it plagiarism, especially if I don't see any reason not to. And that does not mean that I'm going to accidentally flag your papers as plagiarism either. I'm talking about a very specific phenomenon here. And what I want to emphasize is that the numbers don't really have anything to do with it. Like, I have absolutely given students a passing grade with no questions about plagiarism if Turnin and flagged it as a 40% plagiarism paper. And I have failed students for plagiarism when Turnitin picked up 0%. The numbers have nothing to do with it. Plagiarism and its detection has, is not a quantitative science. It is a qualitative one. It has a, so much to do with where are your sources coming from, how are you using those sources, and not how many words are in common with them. That 40% plagiarism paper used a lot of quotes from other sources, but he cited them properly, he used them appropriately, and the paper that he produced was clearly original work. As for the 0% one, it was so garbled, it was absolute nonsense and completely unreadable and unintelligible, and therefore I couldn't give it a grade, even if it wasn't plagiarized. And yet I could very easily track down, here is this source in the first page, here is this source for the second, and it's just garbled and mixed up language. That's plagiarism. So please do not come to me arguing, oh, but the percentage. I don't care about the percentage. I care about what I find in the text. So if you do, in fact, get flagged, it's not a big deal. Like, every semester I have mythology students who turn in papers that get flagged because they use the phrase, tree of knowledge of good and evil. That is a stock phrase. It appears in the Old Testament. It appears in virtually every discussion about the Garden of Eden and the fall of human beings. If you're going to write about the Genesis story, you're probably going to end up using the phrase, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's okay. I don't mind. Turnitin is going to flag it, and I'm going to ignore it, because I do not take Turnitin's 100% advice as gospel. I am evaluating these things, so I'm not going to accidentally call your paper. The one time I have, in fact, gone to a student and said, you plagiarized this assignment, and then apologized later and said, no, I was wrong, was because I missed their citation. 
Like, they didn't quite cite it properly, but they did in fact cite it in their bibliography and at the bottom of the page, and I was like, okay, I just blew right past it because it wasn't in quotes, and assumed that it was plagiarism without noticing that it was in fact the exact same source that they were, that said that they were using. That was my fault. But every one of the other cases, it's been very cut and dry. Um, so don't plagiarize this way either. Don't think that you can snow me with moving all the text around, and don't think that it's okay to do that. Because it's not. I am not going to accept that kind of paper. Um, I am looking for original work. And if you want to know what that means, talk to me more about it. We can figure this out. I will help you. Absolutely. Um, now the third kind of plagiarism is the fuzziest of all. And that's paraphrase. Paraphrase is when you take the ideas of another source rather than just the words. So if you are in fact looking at Sparknotes and you're like, wow, Sparknotes has a lot of really good things to say about feminism and Homer, here is this whole page on the subject, and you take idea, the idea from paragraph one and put it in your paragraph one. And then you take the idea from paragraph two and you put it in your paragraph two. And then you take the idea from paragraph three and put it in paragraph three. Even if you're rephrasing the idea, even if you're putting it all in your own words, this is still technically plagiarism. It is somebody else's ideas. It is not an original idea, and if you're not citing it, you're representing it as your own, which is deceitful, deceptive. But here's the trick. All you would have to do in that situation is cite it. And we're good. Like, that's it. That's all it comes down to. Um, even if you did copy and paste the entirety of a Sparknotes page, stick it in your paper, in quotes, and cite it at the bottom, I would not call you out for plagiarism. You'd still get a zero because there was, you know, no original work to be presented, but it wouldn't be plagiarized. We wouldn't have that whole kerfuffle to deal with. So if you are in fact paraphrasing, just cite it. It's fine. In general, cite everything. I know that there are students in my class who are going to be using YouTube videos and Sparknotes and outside sources to help bolster their understanding of the text we read in class. They're going to use it to prepare for the quizzes, or they're going to do it after the fact, or maybe they'll use it right in their paper, whatever. Cite it. Like, even if you don't think you used it, even if you don't think you quoted it, cite it anyway. Just tell me, yes, I used the Crash Course video, or yes, I used the Extra Mythology video, or, you know, I used Wisecrack, or I used Sparknotes, or I used Perseus.edu. Like, whatever you're using, whatever other sources you're bringing to this classroom, just let me know you're using them. It's just that easy. Like, it doesn't even have to be a formal citation. The only paper that I require formal citations for is the term paper, which we will talk about. But if you use something like this in a response paper, or in your comparison paper, or in an essay for an exam, just say, you know, hey, I used this source, and I drew some ideas from it. Um, maybe they didn't show up in the paper, maybe they did. Who knows? But at the very least, you're covering your butt, and I will not accuse you of plagiarism if I see a similarity there. So, cite everything. And if you do have any questions about any of this, talk to me about it. Like, I know that the high schools are a giant mess at this point, and they're just trying to catch as catch can, so if you have not been properly educated about plagiarism, I'm not going to hold it against you. I was a public school kid. Like, I was the only public school kid in my master's program, but I was, and I'm kind of proud of it, and I'm kind of angry about it. And as a consequence, I know it wildly varies from course to course. I will not blame you if you don't know this stuff. What I will do is help you. That's all I want. I want you to come out of this class equipped not only to write my papers, but to write any papers that you're going to encounter in the rest of the semester, in the rest of your college career. I want you to be ready. Um, so we're going to spend a lot of time helping you out with that, both in class and outside. 
So, absolutely. If you have questions about plagiarism, if you are not sure you know what plagiarism is or is not, heck, if you are sure that you know what plagiarism is, if you have, in fact, covered it as nauseum, maybe just check in with me anyway. Like, maybe just send me an email and say, is, this is what I wrote for this upcoming paper. Is that okay? Here are the sources I used. Did I cite them correctly? And I'll be like, yes or no, and we'll move on, and that's all we need to say about it. But do not, do not... Wait until after you've written the research paper to have that conversation. It'll be too late in the semester to really fix it up and, and make things better if, in fact, I'm going to stand, on, stand up my ground on this one. Do not be ignorant. Do not persist in your ignorance. And do not defend yourself with it either. At this point, I am telling you, if you do not know what plagiarism is, it is on you to fix that between now and the end of the semester. I will help in any way that I can. Absolutely, come to me, talk to me, we'll have that conversation. But I'm not going to do it for the entire class. I'm not going to do like a whole this is how you write papers thing because that takes a long time to sort out. And at the end of the day, I'm still going to lose students. I'm still going to have students who didn't pay attention. I can't fix this all by myself. You have to take some of the responsibility for it. So if you come to me at the end of the semester with a plagiarized paper that is now tanking your grade and you say, but professor, I didn't know I was plagiarizing, my response will be, then you should have asked about it. You should have talked to me. You should have talked to one of your other professors. You should have gone and researched it at reputable sources like, um, like Purdue.owl online. You should have gone to the Writing Center. You have many, many options at your disposal. Um, and I am one of them, and I am glad to help. Like, again, no judgment, no anger, no frustration. I just want to help. So don't come to me and say you don't understand what plagiarism is. There are plenty of ways that you could have figured that out, and it is on you to do it at this point in your career. I hate to be like the asshole on this one, but I am just so sick to death of dealing with student plagiarism. Like, I can't even. I cannot even. So many papers and so many difficult conversations, and all of it could have been so easily avoided. So, yes. Talk to me about it. We need to move on. So let's talk about the actual assignments that you could potentially plagiarize instead of how you might plagiarize them. Um, so obviously we have a bunch of different assignments that you'll be dealing with in this class, but the most frequent, the most, the earliest, and the one that you will probably be tearing your head out the most about are the reading quizzes. Um, so here's the deal with the reading quizzes. There are going to be like, there's going to be a reading quiz for basically every single class session. Like every single time we have a reading, I'm pretty much always going to have a reading quiz attached to it. And these are pretty short, not like terribly horrible, time-consuming things. They are 10 questions, multiple choice, and they will take 10 minutes. Like you'll only have 10 minutes to work on them. They're also, I have been told, murderously difficult. Um, maybe not so much in the mythology class, like my mythology students complain least about my quizzes than, say, my philosophy students who all are, you know, extremely depressed by their quiz performance in most cases. Um, but most of these are pretty streamlined. I've got a pretty good system at this point, so hopefully they won't be too nasty difficult. The key here is they're meant to be difficult. They're meant to be brutally hard. They're meant to be murderously difficult. They're meant to pick out specific details that you didn't think were terribly important and therefore you just kind of glossed over them. The idea here is that I'm trying to teach you to read through the really mean means of this quiz system. 
Um, like, I'm going to hopefully train you to look for specific details that have significant ideological or metaphysical importance. I'm going to be sort of picking out, you know, elements and values that you might not have thought terribly significant, and I'm hoping to draw attention to them. So that the next time you read some new text, you'll be on the lookout for them. You'll be looking for how do the gods behave in this situation? What does love look like in this situation? How are the women being treated in this myth? That sort of thing. Now, they are murderously difficult, but they are also graded in a way that is very forgiving, which is pretty typical of my gold class philosophy. Yes, they are difficult, and you will probably get bad grades on them, at least to start. Um, the first couple of quizzes, it is not abnormal for a student to come in and have not just like a 6 out of 10, but like a 2 out of 10. It happens. But importantly, it's not the end of the world. Um, the four lowest quiz grades you have during this semester will all be dropped unceremoniously. So if you have a bad week, if you just cannot get the quizzes on time for whatever reason, maybe you're down with a virus, maybe you've got, you know, a huge horrible work schedule, whatever, it's fine. Don't email me to make them up because I don't do makeups after the fact. Um, but I will absolutely drop the grades and they will not, in fact, affect your overall grade. Additionally, the reading quiz grade is only 10% of your entire grade, which means it can affect your grade if you are frequently, like, turning in low grades, but it won't kill your grade. Nobody fails because of their reading quiz grade. Nobody. Like, ever. Um, I have students who, you know, turn in every single possible assignment and they do really badly on the reading quizzes and they're fine. Um, the, really, the only way to fail this class is if you just fail to turn in assignments, like, a lot of them, um, or you plagiarize, which, you know, we just talked about. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is all the reading quizzes, there's also another outlet here. Every single one of the extra credit assignments that I offer throughout the course of the semester, and there will be three of them, all three of them have, as one of their many rewards, an additional quiz drop on top of the four I'm already dropping, as well as putting a 100% in their place, just for doing the work. And trust me, when you've got three 100s and seven drops, no matter how awful your quiz grade looks, it'll bring it up in a hurry. Um, so you can always come back from a bad quiz grade. I emphasize this because the first quiz is actually the hardest of all. It's kind of bad design on my part. I would fix that, but I'm actually really excited about the reading that we're doing first, so I'm not in all likelihood going to change it. But that means that you're probably going to be looking at a fairly low average to start. Fortunately, Canvas does, in fact, drop the grade automatically, so it won't, in fact, like count your grades. Um, but even so, if the only grade that is registered in the class is like the 3 out of 10 you got on the Tolkien quiz, yeah, that can be demoralizing. But don't panic. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Everybody screws up the first quiz. There's a reason why I drop all these grades. Your quiz grade will not tank your grade. You can totally be a success, even if your quiz grade is consistently bad over the course of the semester. Feel free to talk to me about it. I'll try and help in whatever way I can, but it is kind of fuzzy trying to get at, like, how to read better. Um, but yeah, the quiz grade will not tank you. Don't worry about it. The next assignment are the response papers, and we will have two of them over the course of the semester, both in the first half of the semester. They are meant to be the most boilerplate, straightforward, simple assignment on the face of the planet. I'm literally going to say, here's the reading for this week, now write me a one-page response. And that's it. It can be about anything from that reading. 
Like, students often panic because it's so open-ended. I'll be like, respond to this reading, and they'll be like, what does that mean? I'll be like, whatever you want it to mean. Um, talk about it. Like, pick out something that you found interesting. Do some comparison and contrast. Like, talk about it in terms of, like, what you believe about the metaphysics of the world. Or talk about it in terms of, you know, some work of art that you saw on TV or a video game that you've played or something like that. Um, that's fine. Anything goes on the response papers. Um, so, it's okay. Do whatever you want with them. The key here is not that I'm looking for right answers or correct responses or whatever the, thing, the case may be. What I'm looking for here is your writing. This is my opportunity to sort of assess how your writing is going and whether or not you are prepared for the major assignments further down the pike. Um, so if I give you a lower grade on this, and these grades are fairly artificially inflated, we'll talk about that when the first grades come back. If you do poorly on it, I highly recommend that you do one of two things, if not both. Either come and talk to me, about how it went, or better yet, turn in a hard copy of the response paper, like a physical copy, and I will take it and I will mark the shit out of it with a red pen and I will give it back to you. And once again, this is not to demoralize you, this is not to accuse you of being a bad writer, this is to help you get better. I will point out all of the things that I found that were either confusing or like weirdly worded or stuff that I thought that you should elaborate on, all of that I will mark out. And I will give you the response paper, and it is yours to do with as you please. This is how I will help you become a better writer. Um, and yes, it's a fairly trial-by-fire situation, but we don't have a hell of a, heck of a lot of time to work with. Um, if you do want to sit down and talk about my corrections, that's fine. Make an appointment. We can totally meet. We can totally fix this. If you want to become a better writer this semester, I will totally help you to do that. Um, I will absolutely devote as much time as I can afford to looking over your drafts on your papers if you want to turn them in before they're due, to going over response papers with you. Um, it's not something I can offer to literally everyone because we have 40 students in this class and like 40 hour long sessions would be way too much time for me to invest into just this one class. Um, but at the same time, like if you specifically are thinking to yourself, you know, I keep getting C's on papers, maybe I should do something about this, this is a great opportunity to do it. I have helped tons of students who weren't feeling terribly confident about their work, who were turning in sort of subpar writings, and helped them to identify exactly what was going on. Like, I consider myself a decent writer. I, in my spare time, frequently am busy writing essays and novels and all sorts of things. I'm very conscious about my writing, and I can help you to be conscious about yours as well. Just let me know. Um... After the response papers, we've got the two major assignments. The comparison paper will happen just after the final or the midterm, and it is described pretty eloquently in the description on both Canvas and on the syllabus. It's literally just pick a couple of myths, compare them, and show how they're important or how they give us important insights about the ancient audience. Like that's it. Um, that's what we're going to be doing in this class almost all of the time dissecting these myths to see what they say to both the ancients and to us. Um, showing us their values, showing us their what they care about, what they think the world looks like, how it works. Um, so by the time that this assignment is assigned, you should be well in hand as far as that's concerned. Um, you get to pick whatever myths you want. The one stipulation is that it's supposed to be like one of the major cycles. So maybe something like Homer or 
you know, the myth of Theseus or Heracles. At this point, we will have read easily a dozen myths that you could pick from with no problem. And students frequently get creative with this one and even do some good work on some of the smaller myths. So absolutely, like, go nuts with it. Um, the term paper, however, is the big one. Um, this is what we're working towards all semester long. Um, this is the big showpiece assignment that I hope you devote most of your time and energy to. Um, and it is literally just a 1500 word paper where I ask you what ancient Greek cultural values are prescribed and reinforced by Homer's epics. And that's a pretty big question and it's a pretty open question. You could talk about any system of values. You could talk about the way that the Greeks view women. You could talk about the way that the Greeks view war. You could talk about the way that the Greeks view sex or homosexuality. You could talk about the way that the Greeks view religious worship or the way they view fate or the way they view death. All of that is in these Homeric epics. And we will have lots of time to talk about them and dissect them and look at what Homer is saying. I expect you to take that to the next level. Tell me something new. Show me using specific details, using specific passages, using specific elements and direct quotes, what Homer is saying to the Greeks about whatever it is that you've decided to write about. War, women, sex, fate, death, religion, whatever. Um, it's very open-ended. We will talk about it more later, um, so don't worry about it for now, but do keep it in the back of your mind. As we are starting to like pick out certain important themes and certain important myths, think about what you might want to actually write about towards the end of the semester. The sooner you start thinking about it, the more prepared you'll be when it actually comes due. Um, the last two things, we have the attendance and participation grade. We talked about the attendance side of the attendance and participation grade, but real quick, the participation is really straightforward and simple. Um, if the attendance participation grade is the last 10 points that I attack on your grade, I usually divide it in half. Like the attendance is five points, participation is five points. Um, the participation, all I am literally looking for, for a perfect participation grade, is that you raise your hand or contribute to the conversation in a substantial way once every time we meet. So just, that's it. Ask a really insightful question or, at, or you know, answer somebody else's question, add a comment that sort of drives the conversation. That's all I'm looking for. Um, if you do that, you get a perfect grade. That's as simple as it is. But if that is not what happens, that doesn't mean that you're going to tank your grade either. Like, as long as I know who you are, as I've seen you discuss in class multiple times, you're almost certainly going to get the four out of five. And even if you never raise your hand in class, even if you feel too shy to actually contribute, that's fine. As long as I know where you're at, you can still get a three or a two or even a four in some circumstances. Just let me know. Just email me. Talk to me back and forth. Ask about when the assignments are due. Ask if you can get an extension. That all counts as far as the participation grade. If I know you better than a face in my classroom, if I have a rapport with you, if I've had a conversation, if I know roughly where you're at, heck, if you just sent me an email to talk about something that we talked about in class or just about the weather, you've got the three. No problem. Um, so that's all you need to do for the participation grade. Um, we also have the midterm and the final. They are pretty straightforward. We will have a review day before both of these exams, so don't worry about it now. We will talk about it at length later on. They are fairly typical. 
Um, lastly, we have the schedule, which we've already talked about to some degree. You can find it on the Canvas Modules page. Again, everything you need to know is probably on the Canvas Modules page, so feel free to check there before we get into, you know, big questions about, like, when stuff is due and stuff like that. Um, for next week, we're going to just answer the question, what is myth? No reading necessary, no assignment to sort of go along with this. We're just going to sit in the chat and we're going to talk about what myth actually is. Um, because I think it's a very interesting word for us to discuss and it's very important for us to get on the same page. And since I'm a philosophy professor, it probably stands to reason that I'd get caught up on a definition fairly early on. So I look forward to talking to you then. I hope all is well with you. Let me know if you have any questions. Just email me, B at montclair.com, I think. Mail.montclair. I don't know. I think both of them work. At any rate, let me know if you have any problems, any questions, trouble with the textbook, trouble with the Canvas page. I will help any way that I can. Till next week, farewell.